What's going on everyone? Welcome back to another week and another episode of Unscripted, where we bring you professionals from all walks of life. We touch on their backstory, their mindset, and how they navigate through adversity and opposition. As always, I'm your host, Akeem Haynes. Before we get into this week's episode, do us a huge favor. Head over to Apple Podcast, Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Chartable.com and leave a rating and review of the show. This small act goes a long way in moving the podcast forward. So thank you for those that have taken the time. I appreciate you. This week on the show, he's got 26 years of coaching experience. He's the co-founder and CEO of Altus, and he's also their present short sprints coach. He's coached over 70 Olympians across nine Olympic Games, both winter and summer, helping attain over 30 Olympic medals. He's an author, a coffee connoisseur. He's also a DJ, in which you'll find out in this episode. Uh, he's a man of many hats. I'm talking about Stuart McMillan joins me on the show. This is a special episode for me because there's not many people who are on this show who have known me since 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 I started. Since I was 15 years old is when I first met Stu. Um, and he coached me throughout high school. I went off to college and four years later after we reunited and he became my coach again from 2015, 2017. And we were able to win a medal together. Um, I will absolutely uh, uh, let you get into the episode shortly here. But there's just a couple things uh, that I want to share about this conversation. Uh, the first interaction that Stu and I had wasn't a very good one. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. You know, uh, we, 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 there's very few people at that time who I met that was more serious than me. And he was more serious than me. And we didn't really get along at the beginning. But, you know, over time he grew on me. And clearly, uh, we continued to meet at the same place and we continued to work together, continued to stay in touch. Uh, but the other story that I wanted to share was um, I was fresh out of college when I went pro, um, when I moved out to Phoenix. Now, I didn't have any money or anything else like that, but I did have a book came out and I spent all my money towards making that book and creating that book. And I took the first few earnings of that book and I bought my plane ticket. And so I was in Phoenix, but all I had was a pillow. I had a couple sheets, but that's pretty much all I had in the clothes that I brought with me. Now, I remember uh, there was a time when we were in practice and I was getting worked on. And they were talking about sleep and the importance of sleep for athletes. And I said, Stu, how important is it for an athlete to have, say, a bed, right? Is that, is that an important thing when it comes to sleep? And he said, absolutely. See, at the time, I had a good friend of mine, uh, Joel Lynch, who let me use his air mattress. And so um, I was on the floor for a couple weeks, and then I was on the air mattress for a couple months. But it was a big upgrade for me. So... Anyway, I take this conversation home, didn't really think too much of it. They didn't think too much of it. But the next day I was in the weight room. About a month later, I was in the weight room. I was just sitting down between sets. And he goes and he sits beside me and he says, when were you going to tell me that you didn't have a bed? And I was like, it wasn't a big deal. I was like, you know, track and field really isn't this, uh, uh, this money-making machine, right? I was just going out there uh, with the intention of seeing how much further that I could go out here uh, with this dream of track and field and trying to make this Olympic team and so forth. So I was really, really wasn't thinking too much of it. Um, but to show the heart of Stu, uh, that same day he came over with a bed, right, with a mattress, and my sleep got incredibly better, but it was a testament of who he is as a person and where his heart is, 
And I always appreciated that. And I just wanted to share this story. I didn't ask him about it um, in this conversation, but I wanted to share it with the audience and for those listening. Uh, many, many know Stu, but there's also a different side of him uh, that many don't know as well, too. And throughout this conversation, Hopefully you will see that because we get into his upbringing, we get into him moving from the UK to Canada and some of the culture adjustments, how we started coaching, the hilarious story of how he met Donovan Bailey, the importance of support uh, when he met Dan Paff and how Dan Paff impacted his life. We talk about how he handles mistakes, criticism and personal development and progress. We talk about the evolution of finding purpose for him, why he left art school why he stopped coaching and came back to it and a bunch of other stories in between. Again, as I said, this is a very special episode to me because I've known him for so long, Um, but you will get to see Stu in a different light than just the coaching genius that he is. So without further ado, enjoy this week's episode with Stuart McMillan. Stu. How are you, buddy? Oh, man, I'm well, man. What's going on over there? It's cold. Atlanta's cold. It's not like Phoenix. <laughs> See, you got to clear that up with me because people have been trying to sell me on this idea of, of, of Atlanta being extremely cold. Well, come on, man. Come on, man. Well, it's not Calgary. <laughs> but, guy, I, I left Calgary in 2010. I'm not used to this anymore, right? I mean, I, uh, it's good, though. It's good. It's, it's, um, I kind of missed having seasons and weather being in Phoenix. It's the same all the time. You get tired of it, right? So um, it's good to be like I. I literally and you. I mean, you know, I I, I wore shorts and flip flops <laughs> every day for nine years. Like I don't have any. I don't even have shoes, man. I don't have shoes. I don't have long pants. I don't have sweaters. I had to go and buy a hat. Yeah, it's um. So that's good. I mean, it's you know, it's it's good to have some variability, some different you know different weather and stuff it's been around man that was one of my uh things man i'm 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 uh um what's the word i'm doing my best juggling act at the moment (laughs) there's a lot of things a lot of things happening obviously you know planning for a wedding is a whole new beast by itself but but you know man for the most part man you know i've always been one to take it one day at a time you know how it goes man if you think too much about all the other stuff you'll create that formula of chaos in a world that is very chaotic at the moment, man. Um, well, I mean, life, and you, you're, you're, you're figuring this out, right? That's what life is. Life is juggling and managing all the chaos. Yeah. And it doesn't. It doesn't get to a point where you juggle less stuff or become less chaotic. It just. <laughs> it's the same. We just get better at dealing with it. Still, man, I want to jump in the conversation, man. But I know we already started. But man, I want to thank you for coming on, man. Uh, over the years, people have asked me a bunch of questions about you. I'm just like, just ask the guy, you know what I'm saying? But I'm going to try to formulate a bunch of questions that I've had. People have asked me for the past, I don't know, nine years and try to conjunction all of it in one notion. But the first one, man, is, you know, I'm big on gratitude, man. So uh, uh, give me three things you're grateful for today, man. Uh, well, we're always grateful for our health. So I'm grateful to be still living and feeling good at 52 years old. Hey, looking, doing... looking strong too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So first and foremost, I'm, I'm grateful for, I'm still healthy and, and, and kicking here on this planet. Second, I'm doing things that I really dig with mm. people that I really dig, you mm. know? So it's, 
I'm, I'm really grateful to still be in a position where I can coach young people and, and help to guide young people and do that with people that I really enjoy spending time with. So I'm super grateful for that. And then I'm, um, I'm grateful for the people that I'm able to do that with and the um, trust that they have that I'm able to do that with them. Because mm. I think sometimes we take that for granted. I've taken that for granted as a coach over the years from time to time where, you know, you have to sometimes step outside yourself a little bit and look at all of these people that are here. And a lot of them are here because of you, you know, and it's sometimes I, I take that, I've taken that for granted and I try not to do that anymore. So I'm really grateful that the people around me, whether that's staff that work with me or for me, or the athletes that have moved across the country or across the world to a new city, a new place for them just to be here with us doing what they're doing with us. So that's, I'm really grateful for that. Man, you just talked about stepping outside of yourself, man. When did that happen for you? Was it, was it, was an experience or was it just a realization through age and time? Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that you get better at. I believe just over as, as you mature. You know, when I was younger, you know, everything was about me as, as, it, as it is with most people when you're young, right? Mm -hmm. You just live in your own little world. It's a small world. You haven't experienced a lot of the, a lot of the world yet. So and all you're, all you're really cognizant of is everything that's in your little small world. And you're the center of that world. Mm -hmm. And over the course of time, you start to realize that, you know, there's a much bigger world. And you're probably not at the center. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, and at that point, you spend more time sort of step, stepping outside of your world and looking into your world and being a little bit more, you know, um, extrospective, not just introspective all the time. So you're looking into it and seeing, okay, where are you in context of all this stuff that's in this system that you're a part of? Because that's all we are really. We're, we're just one small cog in this big system of life mm -hmm. that's interrelated to all these other small cogs right and we feel that sometimes you know when we're younger that we're the we're the central cog when we're not we're just a piece we're just a piece with all these other pieces and it's under it's it's much more important for us to understand how we relate to all of those people these all these other pieces than it is what that individual singular pieces mm. but i feel like that's a process that we all go through right we yeah we have this process of self-identity first we figure out who we are you know what we do what we like to do why we're here and then we start to understand where we sit in the whole big system of things so that's it's um it's a process as you know man you, you go through life and ideally you just get better at this and you understand it you know at a, at a greater depth as you go through through this, uh, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 years that we're on this planet. You know, you spoke about us being the center of our world. Uh, well, our world was shaken up a little bit these past couple of years, too. You know, with the pandemic happening and everything that comes, I mean, we're still dealing with it, man. But you and I haven't been able to touch base um, in, a, in a little bit here. And the last time that we were able to touch base physically, you know, it's ironically enough, I got this notification on my phone and it was a picture. You were behind me. And I, it was, I was wearing blue and I had my hair like dyed. First and foremost, why'd y'all let me do that? That's, that's, that's you first. Good, man. You always look good. It was good, man. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I had a yellow, yellow goldy hair. It was good. Yeah, man. I went to Florida. I went to Florida. I, think, I forgot what it was. 
and every single person had the same hairstyle and I came back and I cut it off I'm like man I, I did this I did this to stand out everybody's looking the same but this next question is a loaded question because um when the pandemic hit to pivoting not only as a coach but as the CEO of Altis and trying to pivot with that um what was that like for you not only for separate from the athletes but for you the person for you the CEO for you, the coach, but also the communication between the athlete, you know, uh, being on the other side of sport now, when it happened, you know, a lot of people were reaching out to me athlete wise and saying, man, I'm about to shut the season down. I'm like, why? You don't want to shut the season down. It's, it's, it's April, right? You got to train your body throughout that time. So it doesn't come from an eight, eight, nine month layoff, but how did you instill in them some sort of hope communication to continue going when you didn't know what it was going to look like? And the last one to that slow of questions too is when the games was finally back on leading up to it, um, what was that process like, man? And, and, and give me your thoughts regarding the game's performance and maybe some of the highlights for you. I know it's a lot there, but hey, man. I'm it, supposed to remember all that question, man. I'm, I'm 52 years old. I can remember one sentence at a time. You better than me. Um, you better than me. <laughs> yeah, it's. Yeah, it, it, it's obviously first and, first and foremost super challenging for everybody. Coach, athlete, everybody in, in the world had a really challenging last two years. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the lead up to when uh, the insecurity around whether the games were going to happen or not was very, very challenging for so many athletes. We were quite lucky as one of our mutual good friends was in a position where he could give us a little bit of insight a little bit earlier than many other groups mm. on whether the games are going to go ahead or not. And of course, I'm talking about Steve Messer, who's on the board of USOPC, and he was, you know, privy to a lot of the, the inside information. So we knew pretty early that this is probably not going to happen. Mm. And as well, we were working with a lot of Chinese athletes who were on the ground over in China. And they, you know, they were told really early as well that this is probably not going to happen. Like Japan's not going to happen next year. And in fact, Beijing at that point was even, they were wondering whether that was even going to happen, right? So it's, we were, we didn't have to be as quite as reactive as everybody else. Mm. Um, But that said, we still did our, I think it was an opportunity, not only for us, but probably more so for all of the athletes that, you know, the general athletic experience is your, it's just here, right? It doesn't extend too much outside past the end of your noses as an athlete and you have to be that way right it's a it's a fairly selfish somewhat narcissistic lifestyle for many of the more elite athletes on the planet out of necessity you kind of have to be that way if you want to really be truly elite um and there's exceptions obviously that's 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 a very general way of putting it but what the pandemic did is it forced all of these athletes to look beyond the edge of their noses and they could, where they were forced to see what, you know, what was happening in the world here and that, yeah, maybe I'm not the center of it. And a lot of athletes really struggled with that. They really struggled with now, okay, I don't have this thing anymore that I'm getting out of bed for every morning. Mm -hmm. I don't have games in six months or nine months or a year or whatever. I don't even have training because I don't have a group to go to. I don't, you know, we're all on lockdown here. That was really, really challenging for a lot of athletes. And as you know, a lot of them ended up retiring because of that. Yeah. Because they had these existential questions that they'd never really 
had to come to grips with before because it was always answered for them. They existed to compete in sport. You yeah. take sport away and now what do we do? Right. That's a real challenge that all athletes come to eventually at the end of the careers. And we know how they struggle with that. It's very, you know, it never happens when they have to ask these questions of themselves in the middle of their careers. That's that was a really that was really hard for a lot of athletes. And we had a few actually that did retire because of that. They just they didn't when it came time to okay, the, the games are back on, it's been pushed back a year, and then the motivation wasn't there anymore. Yeah. So that was the that was the next step was okay. Now that we're like we know that the games are coming in next year, where's that motivation coming from? And how how is it now that you understand a, a, you know more of the big picture, where you sit in this big picture on this planet, and now can you push that aside and become selfish again? Can mm. you just become about you again? And some athletes struggled with that, and some athletes did really really well with it. So it was. Um, you know, from an athletic standpoint or from an athlete standpoint, complex, super complex. But from everybody else, I mean, we all had our challenges, right? We had a, we had a, our massive challenge as a company was just to stay afloat for two years. Yeah. Right? We, we, you know, we were, um, you know, we were, we struggled for a long time as a company. And then we, we were in a significant amount of debt. We did all we could to dig ourselves out of debt. And it took us about three years to finally get debt free. And then the pandemic happened mm. and six of our seven revenue streams disappeared overnight. So, okay, what do we now have to do as a company? What do we now have to do as individuals within this company? How do we need to pivot to ensure that we still have a company on the other end of this pandemic? So that's where the, you know, the creativity comes from and being, you know, having the experience within this to understand, okay, what do we need to do? How do we need to act now? How do we need to lead? How do we need to communicate within ourselves to ensure that we're, you know, sustainable above and beyond what's going on here in the world? So that was super challenging for us. And, and honestly, it remains really challenging. It's, it's hard times for many small businesses, as you know. How do you handle problems, uh, problem solving at this point in your life, Stu? Because, you know, and we're going to get a little back, get into the younger you know, up and coming Stuart Macmillan before the beard, right? We're going to get into that a little bit, but may, as the evolution goes on, you know, we attack certain challenges a little bit differently. So how do you attack problem solving at this stage in your life compared to say, you know, that, that, that 25, 30 year old Stuart Macmillan, what, what, what correlations and, and transformations have you seen from you? Yeah. I, th I think what, what happens with experience and with wisdom is you, you do a better job of understanding the root of problems and you're not just reacting to symptoms of those problems. I think when we're younger, you know, we, we see something as a symptom and then we try and try and react to that. Sorry. We try, we see a problem as a symptom and then we react to that symptom and you're essentially effectively making the problem worse by just reacting on a yeah. symptom of that problem. Where over the course of time, you can understand, again, you can see the problem in context. You can see, okay, if I do this, this is what happens. If I do that, this would happen. This isn't actually a problem. It's just a symptom of something that's a little bit deeper. And we get better and better at just understanding the root cause of it. So that's kind of where 
you know, you know, and it's all a process. As I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not the finished article, and I still continue to try to get better at understanding the world that we live in and all the problems that we see. But it's, uh, I feel like that's probably, from my perspective, I think what I've been able to do better over the course of the last 10, 15 years is, as I said earlier, is, is you can understand where you fit in the context of all the other stuff that's going on. So where, they, where you can see then where this problem fits within all these other things and how all of these different potential solutions and the strategies that you can implement to try to affect this problem, you do a better job of understanding which is the right one. Now, you might still make mistakes, and we do, obviously, we always do. But I think now we can eliminate, you know, if there's 10 different roads to travel, we do a better job of eliminate, eliminating eight of them. And we're just picking between these one or two when, you know, 20 years ago, I might be able to only eliminate one. Mm. You know, so it's, 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 it's something that obviously just comes with wisdom. And you just, um, again, you just, it's just doing a better job of stepping outside of ourselves and seeing where we fit in the big picture. And that's, that's a constant challenge, as you know, because we live in, inside of our own brains. <laughs> so, it's, so we have to be intentional anytime we want to step outside of it and look within yeah. yeah let's uh let's rewind a bit Stu. uh many people see you now in this regard but i think a lot of times the 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 process and the journey can be discouraging and in the process of wanting to be like someone or follow that path the journey is a little bit different for each and every single person but you go back and your journey started you know on the soccer field that's that's the earliest stories that i know about you but i also know as well too that you started coaching with your dad at 14 was that was was that before you came to canada or after you came to canada and 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 just walk me walk us through a little bit of that journey right there how do you know that Hey man, I I got good sources and good memories, man. <laughs> yeah, it's so I we moved uh, to Canada from the UK when I was twelve, and I had uh, designs on becoming a professional soccer player when I was when I was at that age. And my dad was a semi-professional soccer player back in the UK, and when we moved to Canada, he was a coach at that point okay. and became a coaching coordinator of this big club in Calgary called the Calgary Eagles. And when I was 14, I was playing, obviously, one of, with the under-14 team. But he asked me if I would like to coach one of the under-12 or under-11 teams. So I started coaching when I was 14. And I coached all the way up, coached soccer until, um, until I left for uh, Hamilton, I think, in 1992. So, um, yeah, I'd always sort of been a coach. You know, and that was always what I'd wanted to do. Um, you know, growing up in, in, a, in a coaching household where performance was important and learning was important and teaching other people was, was important and guiding younger people was important. So that was always sort of became something that, you know, just, just became important to me just out of osmosis, essentially. So um, that was the early days. That's how I got interested in it. And then there's a whole long story about how I ended up being becoming a bobsled coach and a sprint coach. And and actually, Akeem, I mean, my, my sprint coaching kind of re got reignited with you, as you know. Mm -hmm. So you know, when I was in Calgary, I, you know, I, I started as a sprint coach in 1994. Um, and I built a nice little group in Calgary up until um, about 2001. 
And then I became, you know, a de facto bobsled coach for, because that's how you can make a living in Calgary. You couldn't make a living as a sprint coach, believe it or not, in Calgary. You <laughs> don't say, you don't say. <laughs> I know you're shocked. Um, so I, you know, I, my focus became bobsled and, and coaching speed for football players and soccer again and, and other sports. And then, uh, you know, through, uh, through our mutual great friend, Ken Rose, I met you in whatever year that was, uh, when you were in grade 11, I think, maybe grade 10 or grade 11. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got I to tell the story. I got to tell the story. I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> and then, you know, it's, uh, obviously, you were super talented, and we started working with you and worked, for you for, worked with you until I left for the UK. And um, it was that work with you that actually reignited my love for speed, like true speed, not just speed as part of something else, but only speed, where speed was the only thing that mattered and uh that got me okay I'm, I'm, i need to get back into this more which took me over to the uk and working with dan path and uk athletics and all the you know elite people over there that eventually led to me coming to or me heading out to phoenix and starting what is at the time you know world athletic center and it became altus so it's uh it's all down to you buddy hey mass hey 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 look you, I'm, I'm gonna send you a little invoice oh, a little bit later i'm gonna send you a little invoice later and we can talk about <laughs> the years missed uh, but, you know, man, it, before I get into a little bit about that, um, this question just came to mind because, you know, you've always been someone who who watches and analyzes first before you speak second. And that was one of the things that 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 I learned how we best communicate at the beginning when we first started working together. But when you were a young coach watching your dad, man, what what did he teach you um, and what were you watching exactly during that time? Yeah, it's a good question. I thought about that. And, and honestly, I, I don't know if I remember anything about coaching, the specific mm. part about how to be a coach. It's more than it was just how to carry yourself as a human being, how to treat people with respect, how to communicate properly. My dad wasn't one of those coaches who was just a screamer or a yeller or a whistleblower or a stopwatch holder. You know, he was he was intentional about having you know, impact with the, a positive impact with the athletes he was working with. Mm. And that always stuck with me. And then, you know, so my dad was my primary mentor, obviously as a human, as it is with most, most men on the planet, um, but wasn't really a mentor as a coach to me, other than the, what those sort of general traits that he, you know, carried forth in all of his daily dealings with everybody how that was sort of passed along to me. It wasn't until I met Dan in, in Dan Path in 1995, where I, okay, this is a coach that I want to be like, not just a human being or a man that I want to be like, but this is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is how I want to be as a coach. You know, this is my lighthouse now. There's Dan Path, he's the lighthouse. He's out there, you know, in 20 years older than me or whatever it is, that's what I want to be like. And then I, you know, came, came back to Calgary after that. And okay, how do I become like that person over there? Because that's what, for me, that's what coaching was. How he did it was what I was really interested in being. And before we get into the actual coaching parts too, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a part in the story and the journey that, that I don't think many people understand the capacity of that I've been able to be privy to. Um, and it kind of starts with your, uh, with your, with your Instagram name, right? Finger mash, right? People see that they're probably like, man, uh, you know, just an interesting guy, something deep, right? But if my memory serves me correctly, uh, this was your DJ name, 
right? And I know from our conversations, the music you listen to, um, you're very big on music. And one of those types of music is, is, uh, is reggae music. And I know once Mr. Rose hears this, he's going to send me a message and, and, and say something because of what I'm going to say next, because I always make fun of him for him. Um, <laughs> I know, uh, I know you had a very extensive collection of reggae tapes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and um, so talk to me a little bit about some of the cultural changes that shaped you um, when you move from the UK to Canada, right? Because it is different. It's different, right? But from a cultural standpoint, what were some of the things uh, that 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 kind of helped you grow as a person? Yeah, I mean, I think those years, right? So I moved to Canada when I, I was just turned twelve. I was just turning twelve, and uh, you know, the years where from twelve to eighteen just plays such a big part of who you become, right? And, and, and the character that you are. So it's not just what happens at home, but it's all the people that you surround yourself with. It's what's going on at school, what's going on in your sports, what's going on with your friends. So when I first moved to, to Calgary, I moved two weeks into a new school year, number one, <laughs> right? So everybody had already Great. partnered up, right? All these little, you know, groups had boys already, you know, everyone was friends. And it was just me, this funny looking guy with a, with a funny uh, accent, just moved here from, from England. And I had no friends, <laughs> yeah. no friends, zero friends, but except for one, because one other kid moved to Calgary on that same day and was in the same homeroom as me. Mm. His name was Wade. And me and Wade became boys. And Wade's, um, Wade's parents... Like he was a Jamaican kid. Yeah. And Wade's parents were obviously Jamaican. The, the father owned a sound system and the mother was a great cook. Mm. Great so combo. that became sort of, all right, this is my boy now. I got into reggae through him and through his father's extensive rec record collection. And I got into Jamaican culture and Jamaican food and all of this through this family, right? So just started hanging out with the family and with Wade and we eventually started DJing together. You know, we started DJing when I was probably grade 11, so 16 or 17. And uh, it just sort of grew from there. You know, my, my appreciation for the music, the culture, the food, everything around it just grew. And uh, that, it, 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 as I said, it, it's, it formed such a big part of who I would become and how, you know, you get to experience and respect and appreciate not just this in this specific instance the Jamaican culture but all these different cultures which is I feel like something that you know Canada does a pretty good job of you know we, we, yeah. we talk about the U.S. being this big melting pot well it's not as you know right it's a very segregated melting pot because you got a community here you got a community there and a community over over there and they're all kind of separate separate it's not a melting pot where <laughs> You know, you walk down the street and you've got different people from different cultures speaking different languages all within the same block. That's a true melting pot. And I think we had a better understanding and experience of that actually in Calgary, funnily enough, right? Obviously, it was still dominated by one you know, majority culture, but there was still other people that you got to understand and respect and appreciate. And I always, I always enjoyed that. And especially... You know, there was just something about the Jamaican culture that always appealed to me. And I think it started with the food and the music. And, uh, <laughs> you know, eventually, you know, 
led to me. All right, I, I need to find a way to get, because everybody knew that I like reggae. And all the white people say, oh, you mean Bob Marley? <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. that's all they know, right? <laughs> yeah, plus. Yes, Bob Marley plus, right? And, pe- you know, the white people wouldn't really understand that Bob Marley just wasn't, like, he's obviously a massive hero in Jamaica. But there's, he's just one of hundreds yes. of other people in Jamaica, right? And arguably, he maybe not wasn't even the biggest hero. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. all these other people that, that were making incredible music that had as much respect to the Jamaican people as Bob Marley did. So it's, it became sort of a, you know, a, a problem that I tried to solve in, in the, in the uh, Calgary community. How do I stop people from asking me this question? Oh, you mean like Bob? Or Bob Marley, or Bob Marley and the Whalers. Um, <laughs> yes, plus. So we started this, um, you know, this um, reggae show on the radio station there, um, where our job was essentially, or our goal was to introduce the Calgary community to reggae music, mm. this incredibly rich and diverse musical community, to the Calgary community. And it, it's, uh, I mean, I'm super happy and proud to say that to this day that show still exists level the vibes right we started that in 1998 wow. uh, i did it for 12 years before i left to go back to the uk in 2010 and it's still going so with my former dj partner uh, tello he's uh, he's still doing it with sweet pea patrick every uh, i believe it's on saturdays now it used to be on sundays but it's uh yeah i, I love that time in my life man it's uh, i remember you know, through the 90s, when I was really getting deep into this with, with our friend Ken Rose and Donovan and a bunch of other guys, it's, uh, you know, some of my best times, my best, my, my best memories was just playing reggae and playing dominoes until <laughs> four in the morning, cooking food, eating food, playing dominoes and listening to music. Great times. What were, uh, what are, what are, what are three artists that you can listen to? Just put, just put, um, just put the music on and just listen to the whole album straight. Who, who, who are three of your favorites? So uh, Gregory Isaacs, the cool ruler. Um, I've never met anybody who doesn't like Gregory Isaacs, men and women. Uh, he's just, he's incredible, incredible voice, incredible singer. Um, well over a hundred albums that he's, that he made over the course of his career. Uh, Dennis Brown, um, Crown Prince. Again, just a contemporary of Gregory. Um, Many people outside of Jamaica don't know who Dennis Brown is, but he's a massive, massive hero in Jamaica, as is Gregory Isaacs, obviously. And uh, third, I'd say John Holt, who I feel, John Holt died two years ago, and I feel like John Holt, for me, might have the greatest singing voice Mm. of all singers, all genres of all time. Just that, he's just such an incredibly powerful voice. Before you, uh, before high school, Stu, many also people don't know, and I hope my information is this is all from memory from what I'm trying to formulate. It's not from memory, man. Come on now. Hey, man. So it's, it's all from memory because there's, there's, there's bits and pieces that I'm trying to, I'm trying to get together here to give people the full, the full story of the man, right? Uh-huh. Um, after high school, I think Rose told me one time, you, uh, you started doing art, correct? If, if I remember correctly, like you did, you did a semester of, of, of something with art, right? Yeah, I, I, that was my thing. So I was in, in junior high school and, and high school, I was uh, the artist and an athlete. You know, I was a pretty good athlete. I was decent at a bunch of different things, but there, was pe- there were people in school that were way more athletic than I was. 
but there wasn't anybody in school that was a better artist than me. Mm. That was my thing. That was my thing always growing up is I was the artist. My dad was a good artist. And, and I always felt like that was what I was going to do with my life. You know, if I didn't play professional sports, and by the time that I got to the end of high school, it became pretty clear to me that professional sport and making a living playing professional sport wasn't going to be for me. But art was, because art I was really good at that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I went to art school for, I believe, a year and a half. And then, uh, you know, I figured out that that wasn't for me. <laughs> just put it that way. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know what it meant, right? I just knew that this is what I was good at. And this is, this is why I feel like it's so hard for your typical 17-year-old to make decisions that's going to affect the entirety of their lives at that age. You don't know yourself yet. You yeah. know, you don't know what you're interested in yet. You don't know what you want to spend the next 30, 40, 50 years of your life doing. All I knew was I'm good at art. I like doing it. And I'm good at sport and I like doing that. And I'm good at music and I like doing music. But I didn't know really how to make a career in any of them. <clears throat> so I figured, okay, let me go to art school. And, you know, at least what that did, and I feel like this is, you know, one of my greatest strengths is, all right, this isn't for me. Let me pivot and go do something else that is for me. Hmm. Where most, where, well, not most, but a lot of people will say, well, this is what I do. This is what I'm good at. And I'm going to just continue doing this and then spend four years to get a degree in it and then, shrug their shoulders asking well, what's next what am I going to do now maybe they'll start a job in that and then five years later they're in this miserable job but now they're you know they're, now they're you know it's, it's a sunk cost and now they're in there you know and they spend the next 30 40 years of their life um, miserable that's less of a thing now than it was say 20 years ago or 30 years ago when people yeah. did get into a career and there was way less pivoting going on obviously now it's not so much the case but at the time that was that was different so for me, that was uh, it was a pretty easy decision, actually, for a year and a half into art school to say to myself, I can't see myself doing this for the, a career for the rest of my life. So let me figure out something else. And that's when I went to, um, I, I decided to take an English degree and I wanted to be an English professor. Mm. And this is, this, is, this is how, you know, I'm, I'm 19 at this point. So 19, you think, oh, you're, you're a man at 19 years old. But this is the stupid logic that's going on in my brain when I'm 19. I wanted to be an English professor because I wanted to wear a tweed jacket, <laughs> and smoke a pipe, and teach English. You know, I felt that this is what I had. This is, this is what I thought being an English professor would be. That's, that sounds like a great gig. You know, I'll go be a professor of English at a university on a cool tweed jacket and smoke a pipe. And just, you know, that's my life. And just yeah, and just it, philosophy, <laughs> right? And just philosophize. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, yeah, that, that it took me, I think, six weeks to figure out that that wasn't for me. That's yeah, I'm not going to be an English professor. And and that leaves music and sport. And uh, I didn't feel like at the time that Calgary was the place to be build a career in music, and I wasn't talented enough at anything in music to to understand that there was a career there anyway. I was just a, a DJ who collected records. I didn't play any, play any instruments or anything. So it became sport. So let me go and do a physical education degree. So that's what I did and found myself back into coaching through. <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, the, 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 the story of how you and I met, um, you know, it was 2000 and I had to have been 16. So 2009, 
no, a lie. Yeah, no, 2009, um, you know, uh, 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 Mr. Rose comes and says, hey, man, I have this guy you want to work with. But I think it was 08. I think was it 08? 08? Yeah. That's, yes, because 09, one of those years I got hurt. I don't remember which one it was, 2010. Um, but anyway, so Mr. Rose says, I have this guy that I want you to work with. And I'm just like, I already did not want to do track. And he suckered me in by saying, man, if you do track, it'll get you faster for football. And I'm not the smartest guy, but I know one plus one equals two. So I said, okay, this must, this, this must make some type of sense. And so uh, uh, after school comes, he's like, he's outside. And it's just, it's just you. I'm like, we're, so where's everybody else? And I remember you're like, okay, let's start with an A skip. So I do an A skip. I get to halfway. You're like, stop, go back. Do an A skip again. You're like, stop, go back. Do a B skip. You're like, stop, go back. And I don't even remember what we did that practice, but I remember coming in and Mr. Rose said, uh, uh, well, how was it? And I was like, you know what, man, I don't think he really likes me, but it's cool because I don't think I really like him either. And I don't want to do track anyway. And he starts laughing and he says, uh, uh, he says, man, why, <laughs> why don't you talk to him? And we spent about 20 minutes after talking as well to it. And uh, he was telling me a little bit about the backstory of the frustration um, and how you kind of just stepped away from sport in a sense as a whole before you came back in this capacity. Um, but then the next day he told me, he's like, man, he really likes you. I was like, what are you talking about? You weren't out there to really understand what was happening. So walk me through a little bit about that, Stu, because, um, you know, Canada at in that time is a was a lot different than it is now. There's certain things that you probably couldn't do, probably tried to do, but it was new, it was different, and they probably weren't really, uh, probably facing a lot of resistance in that sense. Walk me through about, about that, that, that stage. Yeah, that's, that's a really good way to put it. There's a lot of resistance to what I was trying to do. And you, know, you can only take so much resistance for so long before it starts really grinding on you you know like really gnawing at you and at your your being you know so you just you ask you begin to ask these questions of why am i bothering mm. and, and it's just yeah. every corner you turn there's another wall in front of you and you turn another corner there's another wall and another one and it just feels like you're just banging your head up against this wall at every single turn and it's as i said earlier you know, when I met Dan in 1995, that became my lighthouse. I know that that's what I wanted to be. This is how I wanted to do it. So he gave me this understanding of what it meant to be an elite coach. And then I spent the next 15 or 20 years trying to become that elite coach in a system that wasn't really ready for it, within a body, me, that wasn't really ready to fight that system in a way that, which it was um, effective. So all I did was I just kept on banging up against that wall. You don't, you don't create change just by hammering against that wall all the time, right? Sometimes you have to go around the wall, over the wall, under the wall, whatever it is, but banging up against the wall and just arguing with people all the time is not the way to do it. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out, figure that out. But, you know, in, as you said, as you quite rightly said, Canada just wasn't in a system at that point where it was ready to change the way in which we thought about sport and mm. performance. And there was a few of us that kind of knew what we wanted to do, but we were existing within a system that weren't, wasn't really allowing for it. There was too many constraints around it. 
And I feel like just over the course of time, this just became overly frustrating for me. Mm. And I said, I can't do this anymore. You know, I've been trying this now for a while. I'm not really making any money at this. Um, I really like it, but I just, the frustrations just became overwhelming, overbearing to the point where I started thinking about what else can I do? What else am I interested in? What else can I see myself doing for the next 30 or 40 years of my life? And at that point, it was either I was going to start a tea shop hmm. or I was going to do something in food. So I was either actually going to open up like a tea shop and sell tea because I really like tea. And, and, and it wasn't just a tea shop, but it was going to be like a record shop, and a bookshop and a little lounge, or maybe a little coffee shop in the morning or whatever revolved around this little tea shop and i felt like i could make this little community out of that in calgary and i thought man i could see myself doing this now for the next 30 40 years of my life just having this little small business hanging out in the corner playing records reading <laughs> reading books maybe serving some tea you know and it's i simple you know, life. I, it got to the point where yeah it was simple life and i put together this business plan around this man I, I, this is i could do this and then the other the other option was to work in food because i really enjoyed sort of understanding more and more about food and that's actually what i did so i met these people that were starting a company in calgary called brick lane which was an organic food market uh that's still there to this yeah day. yeah got five different brick lanes now in calgary and i was i was one of their very first employees and i i uh i became a full-time employee with brick lane uh as their produce manager and produce purchaser and through that, you know, you get to understand more about farming and more about sustainable uh, agriculture. And I got to know farmers and understand their different challenges and understand that entire ecosystem. And that was really fun for me. And I, I, and I was doing that and just coaching part-time because I had a small group of athletes that I was coaching up until the Vancouver Olympic Games. And after Vancouver, I was going to be done. That was it. I was going to go full time into food. I was just coaching Kaylee and Steve Messler and, you know, Steve Holcomb uh, and a few others and, and, and Les Ellis Brown. And that was it. That was it. I was going to do, you know, three hours of coaching a day and then be done. And then, as I said, we we met in, in 08. And I remember it was 08 because I left in March of 2010. And I remember we worked together in high school for two years. So it was 08 and 09. And that, as I said, it sort of reignited my passion for coaching speed. And it's really, you know, at, at, at the real peak of it, you know, not just speed as part of something else, but all right, I really want to get into track and field, not just speed as part of something. And this is what I saw with the team. And then, you know, you, you know, I don't know what, how, how fast you ran in that first year, it was 1049 or 1050, whatever it was. And it's just, but it said, all right, yeah, this guy's really good. He's really improving. The next year he proved some more. I said, all right, this is what I want to do. And that's when uh, I reached out to Dan and I said, I understood that Dan was going over to the UK. So I called him up and said, Dan, I know you're going to the UK. You've got any, any gigs over there? Cause I'm sick of Calgary. I want to get out of here for something different. And he says, yeah, I'd love to have an assistant. I'd love to have some help over here. So I flew over there in, in September of 2009 and, and interviewed to be Dan Pass assistant coach. Uh, I got the, uh, I got the job and, uh, the Olympic Games finished on the last day of February in 2010, and I was on a plane the day after and moved to London. And that, uh, you know, that that literally changed my life. So it was, um, yeah, that's the story. Man, be, before 
to understand 2012, I think we have to go back to 94, 95, um, when you met Dan um, and that whole games uh, with uh, with being with him and, and being with Donovan. And I want to get your thoughts on that from 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 what you learned from Dan. Dan doesn't always say much, but there are also things that you can kind of get from. And what questions were you asking him? But also, you know, I uh, uh, I ran 11 Two, I think in the 10th grade, Mr. O has kind of forced me to do track. I was like, man, this is I was like, why would I want to do something that's every, uh, every other sports punishment? I don't want to run. What are you doing, man? And, and, and I ran 11 flat and then we started working together. Um, and I think, I think I opened up 10, eight, but I finished 10 49. Um, and I, th- I think to this day, one of my best races was that 200 that I ran in the rain um, in Calgary um, because in my opinion, I didn't know much about times or anything like that at the time, but I figured, you know, that was a 20 point race under other, under other conditions. Um, but you know, when you left, I was actually considered a small part of me was considering, I was like, man, you know, if Stu stays in Calgary, perhaps I would go to a Canadian school, but then you left and you took that option away from me. So it's all good. But, uh, going back to 94, 95, Stu, um, and you've said before, you know, Dan was an intricate part in your progress as a, as a, as a, as a coach. Um, what were those 95, 96 times with him? Like, yeah, it's, it's, so I met Dan through, uh, Donovan Bailey, who was, training with Dan at the time and I met Donovan back in 92 or 93 when he came out to Calgary um, to try out for the bobsled team <laughs> that's right <laughs> I don't know who he met I think it was he met Ken first right <laughs> and I was out of town I think I was in Bahamas or somewhere and Ken and I said Ken said oh, I got this buddy coming into town or I got this guy coming into town can he stay at your place and um, I say, yeah, that's fine. And and figuring that he'd be gone by the time I got home, so no stress, right? And I get home, and he's he's there. I remember walking in, walking into my house, and you probably heard this story, right? See what's coming up. And I walk into the house, and the music's playing. And I look into the into the uh, living room. Say, Who are you? And he looked at me and said, Who are you? <laughs> I said. Who are you? <laughs> Why are you here in my house listening to my music in my living room, sitting on my chair? And that was my introduction to Donovan. And we became pretty tight ever since. Um, and then when I got more into coaching sprinters, Donovan says, you need to come down and, and meet Dan, my coach, because he's, you know, he's the guy. You really need to learn from this guy. So I went down there and, uh, and I took a group of sprinters down there. And, you know, as you said, Dan doesn't say a lot. And that's probably the biggest thing that I learned from Dan. It's Dan is not going to give you the solution to a problem. He's going to try to put you in a situation where you can figure out your own solution. We don't learn if somebody just gives us the answers. That's not learning. That's somebody telling you what the answers are. Think about how we learn when we're kids. You You have a problem and you figure it out. If you're told the answer, you haven't figured it out and there's no learning there. So there's no teaching. And Dan, for me, was the ultimate in teaching. Mm. And he showed me what teaching was and then what that teaching-learning relationship was and when, then what the coach-athlete relationship was out of that is to ask the relevant questions, putting the athletes in the appropriate positions where they can learn stuff by their own because that's what this is. If you're not learning it, you don't, 
you know, or if, if you're not figuring it out, you're not learning it and you're not applying it when you need to. So that's the biggest thing that I learned from Dan was that there's a method to his madness. There was a reason why he's not always saying stuff. You know, it's uh, and it, I know it was it was a, it was a source of frustration for many athletes. <laughs> and it's not always the way to do it with many athletes. Right. And it's, it's, it's the same with with my own career as a coach. Many athletes just want to be told, coach, just tell me, man. Like, just tell me the answer here. And I get it. And sometimes you actually do have to do that. Yeah. But, you know, his dance bias was athlete needs to learn here. I'm not going to tell them. It's about, you know, the, the old um, motto of, you know, I'll teach you how to fish and you can eat for a lifetime rather than I'll give you a fish and you can eat for a day. That was Dan. So that became me and that became my way of coaching, which which uh, I know pro probably led to some frustrations even within, you know, you and me and, and our coaching relationship, mm -hmm. right? Because you were you were one of those guys at that age that, coach, just tell me what to do, man. Just give me the answer, you know? Like you were very introspective in many other ways, but in, you know, the coaching track and field way, you just wanted, just tell me what to do. I'm going to mm -hmm. do it. That's fine. So it's, um, I think it probably took me too long to figure that out, but. <laughs> you know it, we can't live our life it, it, it's it's i have three more questions for you Stu. It, it, it's funny you said that because it reminded me of a moment when um um when we all started training together um with that uh, with that saturday group you know uh, uh steve kaylee humphrey steve holcomb and a couple others and i remember um you paired me and uh me and steve up to do some 40s and 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 um Every, I remember I did a 40 and you, and I came back and I said, how was that? And you kind of gave me some brief details, but then you said, every time you do a stride and you come back, I want you to have a question for me. And I'm like, I don't even talk this much. What do you mean? You want me to have a question for you? And I remember doing it for the third time. And I was walking back with Steve. I was like, uh, Steve, uh, what are you going to ask him? <laughs> I was going to steal his question. <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to steal this. But as I got, as I got older, um, I started to understand why. And that's why I started to ask questions and became pretty inquisitive as an athlete, especially with therapists, because I wanted to understand why certain things was reacting the way it was and why I felt sore and why when I do this, I don't feel sore. So I became um, inquisitive to the process of how do I allow my body to move as completely as it can. Um, one thing is evidence, Stu, is, uh, is support, right? Support goes a long way in any environment, um, but it works when everybody's on the same page. And you and I have talked a little bit about, I've spoken a little bit about Dan as well, too, um, and with Greg a little bit as well, too. In 2012, with uh, the British team, Dan Paff, and I spoke a little bit with Gordon Bosworth as well, too. Um, those were special games for everybody, from what I understand. Uh, what do you remember about that year and, and, and kind of what made it so special for you guys as, as, as a team? Yeah, that was, it was a fantastic time. That was uh, a really key couple of years in my life was the lead up to those games. And I, I was really lucky that, you know, so when I got over there, I got over there as Dan's assistant that quickly became Dan is the coach of all of the field eventers mm. and the long sprinters. And I was the coach of the short sprinters and I had total freedom to do whatever I wanted to do that. Week. 
which was fantastic and a great, great learning experience for me. But we had a super group, man. Like we had a great, great group of athletes, but also a great group of staff that supported the athletes and supported the coaches, as you mentioned, you know, whether it be Gordon Bosworth or Jerry Ramajita or, you know, Kevin Tyler, who's my business partner now, and, and, and Derek Evely and, uh, you know, Glenn Kearney and all of these, Paul Bricey, all these great people. So that's what makes anything great is the people that you're around at the time. So it's, you know, I'm doing really cool things mm-hmm. in a cool place at a cool time leading up to this London Olympic Games with cool people. You can't ask for more than that, right? That's it. Yeah. Cool things, cool place, cool time, cool people. And I had it all there in London for those two and a half to three years I was there. Just a fantastic time. London put London did an amazing job of putting the games on. You could feel the excitement, the energy of the entire city. We had a really good group of athletes that were competing there. Fortunate enough where Greg, you know, won an Olympic gold medal. So he brought so much buzz and excitement to the entire group and the entire system. Yeah, it's just an amazing time. Just just loved it. Absolutely loved it. When it comes to mistakes, Stu, how 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 have you handled that in your career, right? Because, you know, uh, certain things sit with us a little bit longer. And with criticism, you know, you may say you mishandled this person well. You didn't do a good job with this person. This person could do well with so many things. And there's so many voices that come inside the play. And I've always been a person who says, you know, it, eventually when you hear something enough times over and over again, parts of that start to trickle in. You start to say, wait a minute, did I do something wrong? Right. Um, how, how, how have you handled that over your career when it comes to, you know, maybe criticism, you know, making mistakes and just trying to be better, not only as a coach, but as a person. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm generally probably genetically somewhat stubborn, you probably got to beat me over the head a few times hey that's a mistake for me to finally figure it out oh yeah that was a mistake for that Mm -hmm. and that's again one of the things that we get better at over the course of time we 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 recognize that a little bit earlier so that said you know there's there's a few heuristics here a mistake is an opportunity to learn and just move forward and get better so as soon as you can recognize that it was a mistake You recognize that there's an opportunity within that to learn from it and get better and move forward and be a better human and or a better coach or whatever it is that you're trying to get better at. So it's I think I've got a lot better at that over the course of time. I wasn't very good at that in my early career at all, as we sort of talked about. It just becomes about you and you don't understand where you are, where you're fitting within this whole system. Right. So that's number one. It's just take those opportunities as or take those mistakes as opportunities to grow. And secondly, and, I, and I, I briefly mentioned this earlier, is we have to grow with positivity. We don't get to live our lives backwards. We can't just, all right, I made a mistake back there, and I'm really going to think about that mistake over and over and over again. Or I made that mistake a few years ago. Like, I'm really good at having a short-term memory around those things, around it being a negative influence in my life, and I just move forward. You know, I'm pretty pretty stoic in that sense where okay that's all right. it's, it's gone now so right. i learned from it and i move forward mm-hmm. and it's in the past and there's there's obviously exceptions to those things and if you've made a significant mistake in your life and that's those mistakes are going to haunt you from time to time they will come back in your memory and say ah yeah 
But again, that's another opportunity for you to, it's, it's coming back and reminding you that that was a mistake and they don't make that mistake again, learn from it. So I feel like even then when it does, you know, periodically jump back into my brain, that's just another opportunity for growth for me and for learning from to ensure that I do learn from it and move forward. So it's, you know, I think there's, there's two um, complementary things there, right? Is one is learning from those mistakes and second is not really getting so tied down into that mistake that you can't actually move forward. So it's, mm-hmm. that's how I try to live things at this point. Last question, Stu. Uh, you've been well coaching now for what, 34, 35 years, something like that. You know, we're just going to round it up 35, 36, something like that, right? Yeah. When, so I, co- I started coaching when I was 14 and 52. So that's 38. But I really started coaching seriously. Um, you know, in, in the early nineties. So I said 92. So this is probably 30 years. Seriously. I got to ask you, man, because, you know, for me, knowing you as, 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 as earlier and as long as I have to date, I didn't really think you'd be in the game this long. Right. What, what, what redefines your purpose now at this stage in your life for you to continue doing what you're doing? Yeah, it's, it's, there's a way to look at that question. And I think it's the wrong way. If you, if you define your purpose as a singular static thing that doesn't change over time, I think that's the wrong thing. We mm-hmm. talk a lot about the importance of finding a purpose. It's not finding a purpose. It's finding purposes, the reasons mm-hmm. for doing what you're doing, the, the purposes for you to being here on this planet and understanding that you're a dynamical being and you change over time and your interests change over time and the people that you hang out with changes over time and the environment that you exist within changes over time. All of these things are dynamical. So it's for you to expect to have one singular purpose from day one to day a million is not going to happen. So it's for me, I've always been pretty good at just, I'm a curious person from curiosity, I believe, comes some sort of creativity. When you're curious about things, you look at ways to, you know, to expand upon them and transform upon them. And then through that comes some sort of wisdom, ideally, at the, at, at the end. So it's, yes, I've been coaching for a long time, but I coach in different ways. For me, coaching is the ultimate in generalist professions, right? Because you have to know a bunch of different things yeah. about a bunch of different things. <laughs> so there's always opportunities for me to go down these rabbit holes if I'm curious about something. So those have always been there. And then since 2017, well, even earlier, right? So I was a business owner, you know, when I was in Calgary, I had my own business with shared businesses with other, with other um, colleagues and things. And then since 2017, when I bought Altus or when, you know, when me and my business partners bought Altus, now I'm also an entrepreneur and a Mm -hmm. business owner and a manager of people. So it's not just coaching now, now it's coaching and all of these other things that I need to get better at. So this whole mix becomes my then my purpose and all of these things, what's within all that mix and how can I become better at that? That's why I'm here. Well, Stu, man, thank you again for your time, man. As, as I've said before in other interviews and stuff of that nature, you know, I've said, whenever you decide to hang up the track and field aspect, the coaching, put the whistle down, man. I think, uh, I think, I think genuinely you would be one of the best, biomechanical lecturers, biomechanics lecturers um, 
period, man. Um, I've, 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 I've always res- respected that about you. You know, you taught me some words that I've never heard before, like posterior chain and all that. I'm not, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds good. Right. So man, I, I, I appreciate your time. I, I appreciate you the person, man. And you know, it's always love from over here. Um, what is hey, the I best- appreciate you, man. It's still, it's so, um, heartwarming for me to see you doing what you're doing. So, so much, uh, pride for you from, thinking back to that young 15-year-old King Haynes and seeing what you did through your athletic career and then watching you grow post-athletic career has just been super proud of you, buddy. I appreciate so, that, man. Um, great, great chat. Dude, we'll talk soon, man. Have a good rest of your day, man. All right, dude. Thanks, man.